This is Intertractional, an exploration of Star Trek through an intersectional feminist lens. Star Trek is both a reflection of our society and an aspiration for our future. The stories it tells shape our world. Intersectionality explores intersecting forms of oppression and how they affect individuals with compound identities. Star Trek is for feminists. Okay, shall we get started? Quick shout out to uh, to my parents who donated to us. Thank you, Becca's parents, Mutola and Barnes. <laughs> yeah, they're really awesome. John and Marlene. Um, and I wanted to say, Mom and Dad, that uh, the only reason that we didn't mention this at the beginning of the previous week's episode is that we recorded that before you gave us the money. So we really appreciate it. And we're going to buy some stickers. Oh, my God. We're going to buy stickers. We're going to put them all over San Francisco. Heck yes. So everybody get excited for our stickers. Thank you so much. Um, If you want to donate to us, you can go to paypal.me slash federation and fempire. That's empire with an F. You will get a shout out and we will invest in this podcast and it will keep happening. Slash maybe uh, invest in our tummies. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have to eat in order for this to happen. So that's a that's a real thing. Today, we're going to talk about Captain Jean-Luc Picard, USS Enterprise. <laughs> also known as Locutus of Borg. <laughs> oh, can we play a clip of that song? Do you think YouTube will sue us? I think it'll be fine. I... Honestly, have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know what I'm talking about? No. <gasps> oh my gosh. What is happening? Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Captain John Picard of the U.S. Okay, so that was just a little like interlude where my mind was blown. I did not know that the world had come up with a dance club remix of Jean-Luc Picard like best lines, but it exists and you just listened to a small clip of it. You should watch all the videos. We will link in our show notes to the whole video, maybe multiple versions of the video, because apparently there are multiple versions of the video to this song. So we're talking about Jean-Luc Picard, and (laughs) we're talking about the Borg. Yeah, we're leaning into our, we're talking about the Borg. We are really interested in the Borg as an entity or entities and also like what they mean in contrast to the federation and we're gonna hit on the much awaited subject that i have been much awaiting of guinan yes guinan (gasps) i'm so excited to talk about guinan she um figures prominently into these two borg episodes that we picked her complicated friendship maybe romance with Capitaine Jean-Luc Picard. (laughs) We're we're playing around with form a little bit today. And actually, we'd love your feedback uh, to know how you feel about this. We're going to read very brief summaries. And then as we talk, we will describe things that happen in the plot that relate to our conversation. Let us know how you feel. What did we watch, Becca? We watched 
a couple episodes, both from The Next Generation. First, The Best of Both Worlds, parts one and two, which aired in June and then September of 1990. So it was like a two-part episode cliffhanger situation between seasons. Very drama. The Borg advanced their plans to assimilate the human race by kidnapping Picard and making him their spokesman. Riker goes head-to-head with a young Borg expert named Lieutenant Commander Shelby. Guinan advises Riker on letting go of the captain, citing her long relationship with him. We also watched I, Borg, which is season five, episode 23, and aired May 1992, when I was eight. The Enterprise finds a lone Borg drone separated from the collective and brings him aboard to give him medical care. The drone begins to reassert his individuality, but his presence causes differing levels of fear and sympathy from various crew members. What what the fuck happens in the best of both worlds? Something about there used to be a city and yes. now there's a crater. That's their first indication that the Borg are coming. This curly haired chick comes on the ship along with an admiral in like a sparkly uniform. Yeah. It's like a deep V, but the V is filled in with more shirt. So so he shows up and he's like, the Borg are coming. This is Lieutenant Commander Shelby. She's really great. She's a Borg expert. Listen to what she says. And Riker is like, I immediately hate you. Like she's been yeah. back at Starfleet headquarters or wherever it was she was hanging out, like deep studying the Borg. And also being very ambitious about her career. And so she comes on board and she's like, hey, yo, Riker, how do I get your job? So there's some confusion going on amidst these three players right now. What no one knows other than Admiral What's-His-Face and Riker is that Riker has been offered a commission for another ship. The Melbourne. He's not answered yet. And he's not answered yet because he doesn't want it and he hasn't figured out how to tell them. And it's also the third time they've been like, Riker, we want to promote you. And he's like, I just want to work for my best friend and stay on the same ship as my ex to make sure she doesn't date anyone else. You guys leave me alone. Towards the very end of that episode, he's like, my career decisions are my own. Everybody back off. Yeah. And I think it's fine. Like if he wants to be second in command, he's really good at it. Right. And there are lots of legitimate reasons to not to want to be captain. The one that he repeatedly gives is that he doesn't want to leave the Enterprise. It's the best ship. He doesn't want to be on not the best ship. Mm -hmm. So he might just be like holding out for this captaincy. Yeah, no, this is an interesting analysis where the like conniving version of Riker is like, I don't want to take these other captaincies because I want the Enterprise and I'm just here waiting out Picard, who I also like and respect as a mentor, but like, Field. Yeah, that might be part of his reasoning. My personal opinion is I don't think he wants the responsibility. We do. Yeah. It, remember the episode we talked about last season where they all had their memories fucked with? The, the mind rape episode? Oh, the mind rape episode. Yeah. So in the mind rape episode, the memory that puts Riker into a coma is him making a command decision that gets someone killed. Right. And he's got some PTSD from that. And he might not want to be the final decision maker. He might not be over that. He might have some discomfort with that. Yeah. I also think that his experience serving under a different commander on that ship that had like the illegal cloaking technology experiment where he had a major disagreement with his commanding officer. I think he might be worried about 
having to take that position and then like making those kinds of like really difficult decisions, potentially getting into some kind of moral or ethical quandary where he's the like ultimate decision maker. So I can see the hesitation thing here. But I also think that he he draws the contrast between that captain and Jean-Luc and says like, okay, this captain has never made me question my own moral values or like my belief in Starfleet's decision making. And if he were to become captain, he would probably be put in because, you know, the admirals are like all fuckheads, right? That's yes. like part of the part yes. of the lore. Yes. And so maybe he's just like, I don't want to be directly reporting to an admiral who's going to tell me to do something that I don't think is the, the right yeah. ethical decision. I think this hits on something that we've been wanting to talk about more, which is just like toxic masculinity mm. and like what's expected of men. What's expected of men is to be very ambitious with your career, to want to be in charge. Like no one understands why he would make another decision. The Admiral is downloading this information to Jean-Luc Picard. I'm just going to continue to call Jean-Luc Picard. (laughs) In the meantime, Riker is escorting Shelby to her quarters. And she's like, let me know how to get your job. And he's like, oh, what the fuck? You want my job? But she doesn't want to take his job from him. She thinks that he's leaving. Right. So now these two are kind of in a conflict for the rest of the episode in which he feels very threatened by her. Mm -hmm. And she feels a bit defensive. She doesn't seem to think she's doing anything wrong, but continues to assert herself. So Riker's emotional journey is... Here's Shelby, a young hotshot who's like all about taking risks. Riker's like, I used to be the young hotshot who was like all about taking risks. What happened? And he has a conversation with with Deanna where he brings this up to her and she's like, well, you know, you're older and you're wiser now. Oh, I also just kind of wanted to touch on how he invited the Admiral to play poker with him, but like didn't invite Shelby. And the Admiral was like, what the fuck invite Shelby? Ooh. Yeah, he was like, there's always a seat at the table for you, Admiral. And the Admiral's like, I got to talk to your captain. But rumor has it, Shelby's really good at poker. Mm. And is like, why didn't you? Like, just calls him out. I mean, he's really polite about it. But I felt like that was a call out. Like, why didn't you invite her, dude? I really like that, actually. That's a, I think that's a good example of a male leader being a good mentor to Mm -hmm. a female up-and-comer. This woman needs to be forming these relationships. If y'all aren't going to invite her yourself, I'm going to make sure she gets in there. Yeah. Into the, where the room. I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I mean, that's 100% my read on him. When he's talking to Picard and he's going on and on about how much he likes Shelby, Picard's like, oh, does she like catch your eye and kind of makes a little joke? Like maybe you're attracted to her and he just shuts it down. He's just like, no, she's just a really, really good officer. You should hire her. This is his new like mentee and he's gonna help her out. And it's awesome. Yeah. Also, just like in case my husband actually listens to this, I know mentee is like a fucked up word. Uh, there's like a lot of etymological reasons why like mentee should not exist. Can I use his name? Yeah. Whatever, Joachim. Language is fluid. It is used how like people use it. So mentee is in the vernacular. Sure. I mean, he has a really solid argument for why it sucks. I don't remember what it is, but I will link to his blog in the show notes if that's okay with you. Does he also say octopodes? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so this admiral and this per- doing this particular thing is actually doing something that more people in the real world should do, which is to advocate for female leaders. Agreed. On the rise. Agreed. Yeah. I love that. 
There's a really tense poker game later. My only note about it is that Wesley isn't ready for poker. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> They're all like, Wesley, you can't handle this. Riker's like bluffing you. It's obvious. And he's like, I fold. That sort of brings me back to what's going on with Shelby, right? Yeah, Shelby like, calls his bluff. Shelby calls his bluff. They keep sort of insinuating that Wesley doesn't understand what the game is or how to play the game, but like Shelby does. She's playing the game. She has a seat at the table, the literal table, and like she's playing the game, which is office politics. Mm -hmm. And like Wesley, who's really, really smart, which has been like hammered into our brains for the last few seasons, is now in an actual officer's uniform. Like he's in his ensign's uniform, but he does not know how the game is played. Going forward, Shelby gets up earlier than Riker and takes the away team down by herself, like directly violating his orders. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though his orders seemed to exist only to annoy her. So I kind of get why she did that. (laughs) Right. And she has a legitimate reason for it. She's like, there's a storm front coming in. We wanted more time to survey this area before the storm front comes in. I mean, she could have told him. I can see like a lot of justifications for why she didn't. Maybe she was like, his duty schedule says that he comes on at 0800 and it's like 0700 now. And I just want to get out to jump on the day. Data doesn't sleep anyway. Let's go. (laughs) They're down on the planet. Riker's like, Shelby, I need to talk to you. I'm sorry, but I woke up early and I saw that a weather system was moving in. It could have affected the soil readings. So without any regard for the risk of coming down here alone. Really, Commander, if we ran into the Borg here, two extra bodies wouldn't have made a hell of a difference now, would they? We had three hours before the storm front hit. Less than two hours now. Data was available. I took him, we came. I don't see your problem. My problem, Commander, is I expect to be notified before there's a change in my orders. Noted for future reference. And she's and like, whatever, dude, my hair is awesome. <laughs> she's got this like really great early 90s hair where she like set her hair in rollers, put it up, hairsprayed it, and it has this mystical kind of romantic look. It's very blonde, by the way. She's a blonde haired, blue eyed, pretty short lady. Actually, one of the things that I clocked was she's at one point sitting in Riker's chair uh-huh. um, after, he's, yes, she is. after he's been field promoted to captain because... Picard is Locutus, and her feet do not touch the floor. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah, she's short. She's short. I like that they've got this short, powerful lady. Me too. I mean, sometimes I have issues with how femme-presenting all the women, like, extremely femme-presenting all the women on this show are, and, like, how they killed the only non-femme-presenting lady. But I like that they don't think it has to match, necessarily, that she can have this, like, really strong, aggressive, ambitious personality and her like cute little hair mm-hmm. and her short little body. And then we've got like Tasha Yar who looked pretty butch but was very soft-spoken. One thing you brought up earlier before we started recording um, is that she is Lieutenant Commander Shelby. Shelby mm-hmm. is her last name. But Shelby also sounds pretty feminine. It's, yeah, it sounds like a woman's first name. So while they keep calling her Shelby, following the convention of calling people by their last names, you just know that she's a woman. And it reminded me a lot of Janeway, where they're like, you know what, we're going to give you a last name that has a lady first name in it. And I think there's other instances. Uhura is like a pretty femme sounding name. It mm-hmm. ends in the ah sound. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of vowels in it. I couldn't find other good examples in Star Trek specifically of female officers who have femme sounding last names. 
Although Deanna and Beverly are referred to by their first names more often than their male counterparts, which led me to look into a little bit about when in different arenas in the real world, women professionally are often referred to by their first name, even in contexts where men are referred to by their last name. And I found uh, an article that we'll link to in the show notes, but I'm going to read just one paragraph. It's from Newsweek. The article is uh, is called, Men are more likely to be known by surname than women, a sign of gender bias, re- researchers say. Recognizing a professional by his or her last name can mean improved perceptions of fame, status, and importance in a person's field. Respondents said scientists, whose names were invented for the study, were 14% more deserving of a career award when referred to by fictional surnames, even when they shared the same achievements. Mm-hmm. Wild. It's so crazy. And the other thing that you brought up while we were discussing this earlier was Hillary. Yeah, Hillary and Elizabeth Warren. Uh So in the recent debates, Elizabeth Warren is getting called Elizabeth way more than any of the other, any of the male candidates are getting called by their first names. And Hillary Clinton, when she was running, was referred to almost exclusively as Hillary. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's part of the many reasons that went into um, me eschewing my legal first name, Emily, and going by my middle name, Ryan. One, Ryan sounds like a last name. So when people call me Ryan, I sound... I don't know, a lot more authoritative. Mm -hmm. And it's a male-sounding name. So I've just got all these, like, subconscious uh, vibes that I'm sending out being like, take me seriously. Yeah, but I noticed this happening when I talk about you with other people, most of whom have not met you. You know, I talk about we're making this podcast together. My podcasting partner's name is Ryan. I can see their faces being confused, like you're making a feminist podcast with a myth of a dude. And then I, like, sprinkle in your, your pronouns to make it clear But then, like, the next time I have a conversation with the same person and I mention your name, they're confused again. They're like, who is this Ryan person? Because they can't, like, associate a femme person with the Ryan, like, male name. Which is also crazy because it is is a gender-neutral name. There are a lot of women named Ryan. It is my legal middle name, whatever. But... What you were talking about is something that I was thinking about when I made this decision Mm -hmm. to uh, change which name I wanted people to address me by. Yeah. Because it's powerful and it's real. Yeah. And I think it's why they chose to name Michael Burnham, Michael Burnham. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Shelby. 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 So she's also, she's in the standard uniform, which is a big difference from how Counselor Troy is often presented as a bridge officer. And even Dr. Crusher, right? Even Beverly, who's often in some closer to the uniform, but in some sort of variation. I think in this season and the upcoming season specifically, she wears her lab coat a lot because she's pregnant and they're trying to hide her belly. Oh, but okay. it does make it does make her seem like she's doing her own thing, right? It sets her apart for sure. Yeah. She's she's got the uniform on under her duster, but mm-hmm. is it a duster if it's not down to the floor? Whatever. Jacket. Lab coat. Long, long ass teal lab coat. It's pretty feminine. I bought a black coat that's a similar shape specifically because it reminded me of her coat. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. My next note here is Guinan. Lurking in the corner, waiting for the captain in 10 forward in the middle of the night. He can't sleep before a hopeless battle. She tells him humanity will go on. Oh, yeah. She is definitely lurking. At first, I thought he was going looking for her, but he's actually touring the ship because it's an old tradition to tour your ship before a battle. 
And Guinan, because she knows her stuff and she's hundreds of years old and lived on Earth for a while. Trouble sleeping? That's something of a tradition, Guinan. Captain touring the ship before a battle. Oh. Before a hopeless battle, if I remember the tradition correctly. Not necessarily. Nelson toured the HMS Victory before Trafalgar. Yes, but Nelson never returned from Trafalgar, did he? So she's like calling him on like, you are not in an optimistic mood right now. And they do start to talk about like, what are the potential results of humanity losing to the Borg? This is just another page in history, isn't it? Will this be the end of our civilization? Turn the page. This isn't the end. You say that with remarkable assuredness. With experience. When the Borg destroyed my world, my people were scattered throughout the universe. We survived. Which she still never says what her people are called. I don't think we ever know that. At least not like spoken by her or anybody else. Guinan's people. Maybe they're all called Guinan. We do know that she has a dad. Oh, is his name also Guinan? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he might be looking for her, which we know from the episode where she and Data hang out in San Francisco. And she's like, who are you? Did my dad send you? What we know about Guinan is her people are living in diaspora. They were conquered by the Borg and she has a dad. I actually... And she's very wise. This is another episode where her main role is advising dudes. Yes. Advising white dudes. Sometimes she advises Jordy, but her main role is being the listener and the helper. But we also get hints of how well she and Picard know each other. So while it's a little problematic in terms of her race and gender, it does feel organic to their relationship. So I feel very torn on this subject because mm-hmm. I'm like, I love her a lot, but I also wish she had more of her own story. Yeah, I wish that she had the opportunity to drive the narrative Mm -hmm. rather than to participate as a way for one of the leaders to like develop their plan. It's a very advisory, not directly impacting kind of role. Although as a person who is interested in developing a career around conflict mediation and leadership and management training, that is not a trivial type of work. No. It's hard to make space where people will trust you enough to speak their deepest fears. And that's the thing that she does. I kind of want to get into some more stuff about the Borg right now. So the Borg, they come and they get Picard. He's on the Borg cube. And this is before the invention of the Borg Queen, who's kind of retconned into this through first contact. We see him talking to this giant room where like drones are all against the walls. And they're all like speaking to him at once in this like giant, unified, mostly male sounding voice. Captain Jean-Luc Picard, you lead the strongest ship of the Federation fleet. You speak for your people. I have nothing to say to you. And I will resist you with my last ounce of strength. Strength is irrelevant. Resistance is futile. We wish to improve ourselves. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service ours. Impossible. My culture is based on freedom and self-determination. Freedom is irrelevant. Self-determination is irrelevant. You must comply. I thought that was interesting 
as a speaking of supposedly humanity's values, mm. which really feel like American values. Valuing individualism over the collective, valuing the individual over the family. I, My personal opinion is that America leans into this to our detriment like it yeah. we lean into it too heavily and it relate it it results in uh increased senses of isolation which are uh, attributable to mental health issues it results in people feeling disconnected from their own humanity it, it just it puts the responsibility for your life and your well-being back on you right mm-hmm. we're in this individualistic society so if you're in poverty or you're unhappy, it's your fault, mm-hmm. right? And if you're successful and you're doing great, that's also all you. And like we're not taking care of each other. The vision of the Federation that we're given is this vision where people are able to pursue their dreams and be individuals operating within a socialist society. So it seems a little bit more balanced than what we have here, but we're but we're definitely presented with these like American values being the Federation values. This leads into what I really want to dig into. What are the Borg? What are they all about? Why are they so scary? Why are they a villain? And there's like a few different dichotomies here, right? There's individualism versus collectivism, which is what's happening overtly in this scene. And then there's what was happening in America when this happened and Canada and Europe, this shift from assimilation to diversity and like the melting pot to multiculturalism. What happens when different groups of people come together and who gives and who asserts themselves. Mm-hmm. And then I think beyond that, this theme of like capitalism, globalism, corporatism, of the individual just submitting to this monolithic culture and this overall will, what makes money and what businesses want from us. Growing up in this world where we all end up in cubicles, all end up with the same little lives. The Borg at this specific time in history as a presence in art was like speaking to these three tensions that were happening in our society. Oh, absolutely. So you shared this book with me that was a gift from your husband. Yes. Called Exploring Picard's Galaxy. Yeah. And there's a really great essay in it. You will be assimilated. Multicultural utopianism in the 24th century. Written by Mehdi Atchuche. I apologize if I mispronounced your name. I think we'll we'll pull I'm only some chuckling because I hope that they're listening to this in order to correct us. That would make me so happy. Yeah. Oh my god, Medi and Chuche. I like. I hope they can listen, correct us. Please listen to our podcast. Uh, you wrote a really fantastic essay, which we'll we'll pull some quotes from, like yeah. as we continue this discussion. It really focused for me this shifting of the culture that I think Star Trek was both responding to and influencing from when immigrants like enter the United States, they totally shed their old culture. They like forbid themselves and their children from speaking their non-English native language. Assimilating into the American melting pot was a value. Whereas as Star Trek was telling stories about the Borg in the 1990s, assimilation became less of a positive attribute. Shedding your old culture and eliminating any other language other than English, those are not 
as valued today. Yeah. This is definitely an example of art reflecting life, reflecting art. This was a conversation that started to happen in the 70s and really took hold in the 80s and was like happening in media. Like we had like Reagan and Bush like really pushing Anglo-white assimilationist culture and then other people really pushing back against it. Star Trek picking up on that and taking that reign. Anyone who, like us, was a child when this was happening, when you then hear, like, people should assimilate, you're like, oh, that's a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? The people who assimilate you turn you into scary Borgs who have no feelings and, like, no identity, and that's bad. So it, like, really drove that home for this whole generation of people. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. The other thing that this essay really talks about is this tension between the Borg and the Federation, where the Borg sort of represents the worst parts of the Federation or like what the Federation could do if it's not doing a good job. Mm. Are they out there colonizing people or are they out there respecting other cultures? The Federation also has this goal of traveling through the galaxy, finding new people, meeting them, understanding them, and in a way like consuming this diversity. And the Borg has the same goal, except that they completely want to consume it. What is the Federation actually? And what does the Federation think of itself as? Because the Federation thinks of itself as the anti-Borg, but it's not 100% there. Like everything that we witness, especially in the earlier series, but even when they move away from this, is that the Federation is mostly human, mostly white, I mean, all of these other cultures are in it, but it does still sort of feed into like this ideal of white human supremacy, mm-hmm. uh, which is partially because we ourselves live in a white supremacist society and it was made here. Even if that's not Gene Roddenberry or the creator's intention, it's reflected on the screen. Mm-hmm. Coming back to Guinan, this is not my own thought, but I love this thought. When the Borg picks someone, right, they pick Jean-Luc Picard, not just a white male, but a white European male from Europe. He is going to be their spokesperson that they think the Federation will listen to. And then they have him argue with Worf. And then throughout, like, this episode of the next few, the Borg are constantly arguing with Worf, Guinan, Geordi, these African-American actor dark-skinned characters talking to them about how they can benefit from assimilating like this is how being how joining us will help you and they're like no that's not what we want no that's not what we want no that's not what we want that brings me to the quote i wanted to read about Guinan. Guinan's people resisted when the Borg came to assimilate them, which cost them dearly as they abandoned their homeworld and scattered throughout the galaxy, finding refuge in the diverse Federation, which points to a parallel with the history of African-Americans. And and also just to emphasize this, all the Borg are like painted even whiter. They're so fucking pale. Um, I think we want to move on to iBorg, but Mm -hmm. before we do... Um, You know, like the rest of the plot of this episode is just like they rescue Jean-Luc then he's no longer a Borg and we find out that he's like really hairy. Before all of that happens, a really large battle takes place that the Enterprise is not able to get to. Wolf 359. Becca, what is Wolf 359? So I looked this up. Wolf 359 is a star or star system that is near Earth where it was possible for lots of Federation ships to gather there 
and make the attempt to defeat the Borg. And a lot of people died, including uh, Benjamin Sisko's wife, every Borg that is from the Alpha Quadrant that shows up in 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 Voyager. Voyager was assimilated during this encounter. Wolf 359 comes up again and again as somewhat of a turning point, I think, in the Federation or at least in Starfleet history. It's the most devastating battle up until war with the Dominion and something on the order of 50 ships and their crew are all killed or or assimilated and the Borg cube is untouched. Part of the reason that they are that the Borg are so triumphant in this battle is because they have assimilated Picard, Locutus. They have all of his knowledge of everything, everything that he knows as a captain about Starfleet. Moving forward from this, there are people in Starfleet who blame him in a certain to a certain extent for the devastation that occurred. Or even like Benjamin Sisko, who does not blame him intellectually, blame him emotionally. His voice was the one that they could all hear as he was addressing them, like, you will be assimilated, resistance is futile. And it's it's hard to separate those things if you were there. Picard himself is conflicted about this. And so in, in Iborg, he has to come face to face again with this traumatic incident that happened in his life. And it's really the first time he has to look a Borg in the face since, since he's since been he was liberated from the collective. Let's go on break and then we will come back and talk more about iBorg. Hello, intertractional listeners. Becca here to invite you to join the San Francisco Sex Positive Democratic Club. If you are interested in advancing the ideals of sex positivity in local governance and discourse, this is the Democratic Club for you. We define sex positivity as a philosophy that all consensual sexual behavior between adults is inherently healthy. We support and work to create sex-positive public policy. We help elect qualified sex-positive candidates, especially those who are non-monogamous, kinky, sex workers, LGBTQ, and members of other alternative sexual communities, as well as their allies. We work to sensitize and educate all Democratic candidates and office holders, the Democratic Party, and the community at large to the issues and concerns of these communities. To learn more and become a member, visit sfspdc.org. You can also find more information on our Facebook page by searching San Francisco Sex Positive Democratic Club. Welcome back. Welcome back. One thing that I am now wondering as we were talking about the title of this episode and that kind of got to me as as I was watching the episode is how much they emphasize the importance of Hugh the Borg say, ca- calling himself I versus we. And oh, yeah. Like, did they do that because they wanted to call this episode I Borg? <laughs> or- <laughs> well, he doesn't he doesn't know the pronoun I for a while. He keeps referring to himself as we. Mm-hmm. He is not an individual. He's part of the collective. Mm-hmm. And uh, God, I always fucking forget her name. What's that really annoying conservative uh, lady? writer who like republicans just jack off to feels like there's too many of those tommy laren megan kelly no 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 fiction fiction and rand yes ayn rand ayn rand (laughs) wrote this uh novella where that's like a huge plot point everybody refers to themselves as we it's first person narrated and it took me i don't know like 
20 pages to realize that one person was that when they said we were doing this that there was only one person there Mm. and then I don't know two-thirds of the way through the book he learns how to say I and it's like an act of political resistance so Mm. I think this is touching on that or at least touching on something that was influenced by that I can see that I will uh, remember what that story is called and add it to the episode notes on our website and uh, it's pretty good despite how kind of icky she is yeah, I have never read Ayn Rand. I don't know that I plan to. That being said, I thought that the anthem, the anthem. Oh, I think we've referenced this. We've referenced this particular story in a previous episode that we talked it's about. Like the in a only different context. Ayn Rand I've ever read. Nice. All right. Well, that that makes sense. Uh, that's all that mystery. Um, but I. I have to confess to getting like a little bit annoyed by how much they were like. The thing that makes us certain that he's inserting his individuality is his ability to use the pronoun I. And, like, I know that it's just, like, a sim- a symbol of yeah. him, like, developing his in- individuality. Symbolism, Becca. Yeah, yeah. Language is important. <laughs> Semantics, blah, blah, blah. We do Science words. major. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think they... They hit it on the head. They're like playing whack-a-mole with it. They really, really hit that note. And there's a lot of other stuff he does that I think is more emblematic of that period of growth. Yeah. But what? But the thing that stood out, so because I've watched this episode previously, I was like cued to look for the eye. Mm. And the first time that he says I is when he and Jordy and Beverly are having a conversation. What is your designation? designation third of five you mean our names we don't have designations we have names i'm beverly this is geordie do i have a name and that's when they come up with the name hugh uh but in asking that question he says do i have a name Mm. so that's the first time he says i yeah and yeah and then and it feels like they don't actually like pick up on that they're kind of sloppy with it. Yeah, it's a little bit. They're so. making this big point, and then they forgot that they put it in there. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was like a continuity error, or if it was just like like the first glimmer, and then they were like, oh, now that we've named him, and he's speaking I pronoun, he's like getting it. He's like, he's going to be a person. Mm-hmm. This episode begins with... Captain's Log, Stardate 45854.2. The Enterprise is charting six star systems that make up the Argolis cluster, an area being considered for colonization. I think they use that term to mean we found an M-class planet we believe doesn't have any kind of life whatsoever. Hallelujah, maybe we can put humans there and we don't have to worry about prime directive implications. And then they're like, oh, whoops, there's Borg. We can't be here. They're still using colonize Mm. in a positive light. Whereas here we are today talking about and experiencing so many repercussions, negative repercussions of the more colonial period in global history, how much genocide happened as a result of that. For me, even just hearing the term, we're seeking a place to colonize, I get like, Ugh. Um, so so they think that they hear a distress call. They they go down and, and it's it's Hugh. It's uh Mr. Borg, who's like a baby Borg, like he's a teenage Borg. Crusher is super concerned because he's obviously injured. Let me at least stabilize his condition, give him a chance of surviving until they get here. Your concern is noted, Doctor. 
But any intervention on our part would alert the Borg to our having been there. I'm afraid we've turned that corner already. Kill it now. Make it appear that it died in the crash. Leave no evidence that we were ever here. Security measures must be taken before we beam it on board. Thank you, Captain. Standing by. And so my theory on this is that, like, he only values Worf in order to disagree with him. And he's like, wait, I do want to kill him. And if Worf thinks this is the right thing, it's the wrong thing. So we can't kill him. My interpretation was that Picard recognized that Beverly would not, even I'm doing it, that Crusher would not. Um, we can call her Beverly. We're not in a professional relationship with her. Whatever. Fine. She's a fictional person anyway from the future. The issue uh, is when her <laughs> colleagues call her Beverly, not when we do. <laughs> Beverly. Beverly. Anyway, he recognizes and knows her well enough that when she digs in on something, she will not be convinced otherwise. And she will dig in on treating a patient. Well, I see the read of like only after Worf says we have to kill this guy that Picard <laughs> agrees to take him on board. I'm also like, Crusher yeah. has power in this situation. I think I'm just like, after we did our Wharf episode and after I watched that like mega clip of every time that Picard just shut Wharf down, I'm particularly sensitive to it. Yeah. Um, so it's there. It's definitely there. Early in the episode, there's a scene that I appreciated where Picard and Deanna, she is essentially like, hey, how you doing? We both know you have PTSD. <laughs> Are you triggered right now? That's not the words she uses, yeah, that's but that's 100% the context. What's going on? And he's like, "No, no, I'm fine." And he's not fine. He won't even like go look at the Borg. Like they keep being like, "Go talk to him," and he's like, "Why?" So the Borg is on the ship, and he makes friends with the Doctor and Jordy. They devise this plan to use Hugh to introduce a virus essentially to the Borg that will disable them either temporarily or destroy them permanently. Beverly and Jordy are tasked with finding a way to do that because they know that eventually um, a Borg ship is going to return to pick up Hugh three of five. They're working out this plan and in so doing, Hugh and Jordy especially develop like a pretty close bond. They, yeah. They're buds. Something between bros and father-son relationship. I definitely get the father-son relationship a lot because there's a scene where Hugh like goes through the Y phase. This is like a toddler oh, yeah. like stage of development between around two and three where they just like ask everything they just question everything why are we doing this why is that happening what is going on here i don't understand i want to know everything mom why mom why dad why dad why oh my god can we please play a clip of this <laughs> this is a clip moment what is jordy doing i'm studying the components in your prosthesis why we're trying to learn more about you why because you're different than we are. Part of what we do is learn more about other species. We assimilate species. Then we know everything about them. Yeah, I know. Is that not easier? <sighs> Maybe it is, it's just not what we do. Why? So they 
get really close. And then Jordy goes to Guinan and asks for advice because he's having ethical quandary oh, about yeah. like introducing this virus through Hugh. And Guinan's like, shut it down. The Borgonite individuals, whatever you care about this person, it doesn't matter. Um, They must be destroyed. But she's left with a question. And she goes, visits Hugh, and pretty quickly changes her tune. And this is when we find out that Picard and Guinan have a weekly fencing date. (laughs) Oh, no. This is out of order. We find out that Guinan and Picard have a weekly fencing date when Guinan is still like, fuck the Borg, right? What is he doing on the ship? Because she tricks Picard, right? They're fencing. Picard hits her with his sword and then she's like, ah! And he's like, are you okay? And in that moment, she stabs him. You felt sorry for me. Look what it got you. She goes and talks to Jordy later. Then she goes and talks to Picard and like is like, have you met him? And he's like, no. And she's like, you need to meet him. So she convinces the captain to go meet the Borg. Mm-hmm. And then the captain addresses the Borg as Locutus. Yeah, it's great. He's like, I'm Locutus. You must comply. Resistance is futile. Hugh is like, but you can't assimilate Jordy. He's my friend. He loves Jordy. All like anyone else, but not Jordy. It's so sweet. And then Locutus is like, no, he will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. And Hugh goes, resistance is not futile. Yeah. Hugh is like, it is not okay with me that these people will be assimilated against their wishes. Consent. Yeah. He internalizes this idea of consent. Consent is huge. Then there's this whole sequence of events where where Hugh comes to understand that his being on board the Enterprise is putting the Enterprise and their crew at risk. So even though he's offered asylum, he makes the decision for himself that he should be returned to the collective to protect Jordy and the yeah. rest of the crew. And I yeah. wrote down the note, uh, Hugh is his own trolley problem. <laughs> I love this note. You are many. I am one. Um, Gene Roddenberry knew one th- field of ethics and it was utilitarianism. He <sighs> read some John Stuart Mill in college or something. <laughs> they hit this point just repeatedly throughout all the series and movies. Yeah. Look, you guys, ethics is math. Ethics <laughs> <laughs> is math. <laughs> Which side has more people? There's your answer. Yeah. but there I also- really don't think it's that simple, which oh. is part of why I'm making light of it. But yeah. there is... There is something valid there, which is why it is a whole field of ethics and why it comes up again and again. Yeah, but they're also, so they're also struggling with this broader ethical question of whether or not they should commit genocide. Yeah. They're like, we've come up now with a way to destroy the Borg, which is like a weird shape, by the way. It doesn't make any sense. I, yeah, I don't, I don't, um. (laughs) Who cares? I just, Beverly is like, we're talking about genocide. I don't agree with her because- like that's really believing that the Borg has is its own species and has its own culture and like what it is is the consumption of and the destruction of culture at least as it exists in the next generation before we're introduced to the Borg Queen but at this point what we know of them is that they are committing genocide essentially constantly and they're trying to stop it while her perspective is important and complicates it i think she's missing a lot of what they're actually talking about also picard argues that it's not genocide because 
they're just one thing. Like, there's a lot of drones. So, no, it's just murder. It's just murder. It's just murder. Yeah. There's only one like, of them. Fine. And Kill that Borg queen as many times as I have to. And on top of that, they are in pursuit of the destruction of humanity. Yes. And so this murder is justified. Is self-defense. Yeah. So Hugh, Hugh leaves us. Yeah. I want to remind everyone that Hugh, as Hugh, as three of five, as the actor who plays Hugh, all of those things, are coming back for Star Trek Picard. This actor is confirmed. Woohoo! If you're going to watch that, you should go rewatch this episode. Think about what we said. Uh, do you have any more thoughts on him? Yeah, so I have, I have some more thoughts on him. He reappears in a Next Generation episode that we didn't really rewatch, but I read a short synopsis. He talks about how it is not possible for an individual who has been liberated from the collective to reintegrate into the collective. That's like what they sent him back kind of like as the possibility of introducing the concept of individuality into the collective consciousness. And I'm sitting here thinking like, How is that different from having an individual perspective before you're assimilated for the first time? Right. Yeah. No, they know about this. They they know all the things that all the people think. So this is dumb. Right. And so that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I do think that it also gives more of a reason to why the Borg Queen doesn't reassimilate Seven. Ooh. She's like Seven. She's like, she wants Seven to talk to her. And like in our last episode, we we talked about how it's because she wants a companion and she's lonely, etc. But I think she also remembers that other drone who was liberated. Didn't work. Didn't work. This brings me back to something I wanted to talk about, which are like the parallels between Hugh and Seven mm-hmm. and the different ways that Picard and Janeway handle them. Janeway very much views the Borg as enslaved and as people who she needs to liberate and rehabilitate. Whereas Picard, despite the fact that he was a Borg and was rehabilitated, views them as beyond hope. Yeah, it's really weird, right? It's really weird. Just his mission and his whole perspective on Hugh is just so different than Janeway's. Even though in the fandom, Janeway is constantly being called out as like a dictator, murdery type, like unethical chick who does whatever she has to do to get back to the Alpha Quadrant. And Picard is like held up as this paradigm of ethics. And it's like annoying and sexist. It's thank you. bullshit sexism. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Captain Mommy. <laughs> For for caring about the drones who are individuals. And I seriously, it it just feels unfair given the fact that he has been liberated and he's now living a life again as a human, like captaining the most important starship. Like, uh, it, it feels like it lacks empathy, maybe, or awareness. Awareness. My only excuse for him is that he's deeply triggered. And that this has something to do with his PTSD or his inability to examine what happened to him. Like, because in order to have empathy for them, he would have to have awareness of what he went through, which he can't think about. Mm, Yeah. This episode, he stumbles in the area that he is usually very strong, which is ethics. It's because of that experience that he had as 
a drone as the like speaker for the Borg, which resulted in decimation of Wolf 359. Now he has the knowledge of like the core desire at the heart of the Borg, which is to assimilate all other cultures. Mm. And so he's speaking from experience and from knowledge, but he's not really speaking from extrapolating his own experience to that of others. Yeah. Can we talk about how he and Guyanin are secret lovers? <laughs> I love this. I'm 100% convinced of this. But aside from their weekly fencing date in The Best of Both Worlds Part 2, once he's Lacutus and he's gone and Riker is tasked with being captain, which we know he doesn't ever want to do, and uh, but also replacing his bestie and then also having to fight his, his captain and his bestie in battle, Guyanin decides to come pay him a visit. During which she sits in the captain's chair. And Riker's like, I don't really talk about this shit with bartenders. (laughs) And she's like, don't you know about our understanding? And he's like, no. And she's like, oh, well, what we have is beyond friendship, is beyond family. And I'm like, what else could that possibly mean? (laughs) And she's like, so I guess I'm just used to having the captain's ear. And then lectures on him about how she needs, he needs to let him go. And she's like, I will let him go. She's really powerful in that scene. And she gives Riker the kick in the pants that he needs. Okay, I see. I have to let him go. I have to think differently than I think Picard would normally think in order to not have Locutus be able to predict like what I'm going to do. And yes, also she, as always, is dressed excellently. (sighs) She just wears these amazing hats that look like crowns and they always are coordinated, like made from the same fabric as like the tunics or whatever it is that she's wearing. Yeah, she's the hat queen. Mm -hmm. I just imagine that her quarters are just like all hat boxes. Yeah. Oh, can I just say one more Whoopi Goldberg thing? So Whoopi Goldberg is on record saying that she partially decided to become an actress because of... Nichelle Nichols. Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing. And so she's on The Next Generation at the height of her fame. Like she'd been in Ghost. Like she was in movies at this time. And basically like called them up and was like, can I be on your show? It's a wonderful power move. I love it. awesome. And she's great. Yeah, I just, like I said before, I just love the wisdom that she brings to this role and the gravitas. Mm. Um, It really does. You really do get the depth of feeling that she has for Picard. I'm less convinced that they're like boning or whatever. It doesn't matter to me so much. But they certainly do have a deep connection they really implicitly trust each other. I don't think Picard could be the captain that he is without her. Yeah, I think we've uh, talked as much as we possibly can about these two episodes. Thanks for listening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let us know what you think about this format. Let us know if you want to hear more Borg stuff this season or if you think we nailed it. <laughs> <gasps> Live long and prosper. Resistance is futile. Resistance is futile. Intertractional is a production of Federation and Fempire, written and produced by Ryan Ascalisi and Becca Motola Barnes. Original music by Danny Kafka. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intertractional. Tell us what you think. Join our Facebook group to discuss this episode with us and other fans. Email us at intertractional at gmail.com. You can even send us a voice memo. Visit our website at intertractional.com for show notes, images, and citations. 
Intertractional is available on all podcast platforms, including iTunes. If you like this podcast, help others find it by taking a moment to rate and review us and subscribe on iTunes. It really makes a big difference. You can donate to us at paypal.me slash federation and fempire. That's fempire spelled like empire with an F. Because it's our lady empire. Fempire. What do you think Data's doing all night? Do you think he's just hanging out with his cat? Oh, man. <laughs> just like composing poetry and painting pictures of Spot. Yes. 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 This is what he does all night. I love it. I think he like pretends to sleep for 20 minutes to endeavor to be more human and mm-hmm. then like gets up and like turns his eye into a laser pointer for his cat. <laughs>